Are you ready again? Yes. John Paquin Podcast, Connecticut Valley School of Music and Dance, beautiful downtown Portland, Connecticut. Come over the bridge, go through one set of lights, pull a Yui, park in the street, red neon light in the window. You can't miss us. We are here. You can have your own podcast right here in our studio. Anybody can do it, clearly. Uh, Dave will tell you how. Like and subscribe. Tell your friends. Come on the show. We have a first today. We're doing a part two with Mr. Keith LeBlanc. He was here last week, and he's here this week because there's just too much. There's too much. <laughs> and I'd rather get it. I want to get it. I want to get it now. I don't want to say, yeah, we'll do it in a year from now. we got to do it now. And then also, I started doing my research, and it was kind of mind-blowing. There was a lot more stuff than I knew, so I want to I wanna talk about more stuff. And you're here. Okay. And I appreciate that. I appreciate you having me. <laughs> of course. No, it, it, it's pretty mind-blowing. I mean, I consider myself somewhat of a music nerd, I suppose, but I did just did not, I did not quite realize the, the, the breadth and the depth of your, uh, of your thing. So I want to talk more about it. Okay. I mean, we can't go like, like three quarters of the way and then you just drop Trevor Horn in there and then we don't have time to talk about it. I was okay. Like, Whoa. Okay. okay. However, <laughs> is there anything you want to talk about that we didn't, you know, cause I, I don't want to just like steamroll over your thing. No, no, just go for it. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> just... All right. Stupid. All right. Stupid questions. All right. So anyway, in case you did not see part one, you should see part one. So, to, to basically to sum up, so the, this man here, Keith LeBlanc, so original drummer for the Sugar Hill label, record label, back in the day, the beginning of hip-hop, uh, live band cuts, live band tracks, Sugar Hill Gang. Um, I mean, you wanna, what, are, what are some of the things, some of the songs? I mean, that's the joint. Yeah, just for... Everything that came out of there um, was uh, me on it uh, in that three-year period from like 19, the end of 1979 to about 83, 84. And Crazy. then it got kind of spotty. Yeah. Um, I, I left for a while and uh, um, Doug gave me a call. He said... Uh, I kind of got upset and quit. They they got funny with my money. Oh and, boy! And so I said, I've had enough of this. Wow! And I I didn't give any give him any warning. And uh, Doug called me, and he said, Hey Keith, uh, you got Dennis's number? <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> and, oh really? And, yeah. And like oh, I thought he was calling me to call me. You know, they wanted me back. You know, because after I I had quit, I said, Oh, maybe I didn't do the right thing. You know. And um, so, you know, I gave him Dennis's number. And, Whoa. Then, and then Dennis called me and goes, hey, Keith, what's up? You know, and so I told him the score and I said, I suggest you ask for twice the money because it's you think it's going down. They're stuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, <clears throat> and I knew Dennis was like, you know, incredible replacement. So Dennis lasted there maybe a two or three weeks. You know, oh, whoa. you'd have to ask Dennis. Whoa. Um, what was and, he doing that was he on the way up yet like in he a big was way? no we had been on the road with parliament 
Okay. So Dennis had done Parliament, and he was, I guess he was back in Baltimore playing with... Uh, okay. Um, I forget so that. it wasn't quite, like, what's the main thing? I don't remember. I mean, I was around, like, the main thing that launched him. Really, what really launched Dennis was, I forget the... I think it was a trumpet player's band. Oh. And that's how... Because I think Schofield is when we started, when I started Schofield noticing. really launched him. And I remember when Dennis, this was years after he had taken over for me at Sugar Hill, took my chair for about three weeks. <laughs> and he got mad. You know, he got mad because they got funny, with it, tried to mess with his money. Wow. So he threatened to body slam Sylvia's son. <laughs> and he would have done it. Wow. So he got his money and he did So it was rough down there. He never, like. he never came back. Well, you know, it was uh, New Jersey, very slick, you know, New York. They so they're just trying to get over on you all the time. Well, you know, that's that's how they came up. Yeah, I yeah, mean, sure, I, sure. I, I mean, really, I figured it out after years. The Robinsons. Um, I mean, don't incriminate I, yourself. I'm just curious. No, no, I really, I really loved them because when I ended up doing Malcolm X, um, I ended up going to court with him. Oh. And uh Oh, they, for using the samples. They they were trying to say that they own Malcolm X's voice. Oh wow. So you know, so I got Betty Shabazz. I sure, got in sure. touch with Betty, gave her fifty percent of the record. Oh wow. Because that's why I I sure. didn't do it with Sugar Hill, because I knew that they were gonna rip Betty off. Oh man. So I ended up in New Jersey District Court and the judge that picked the case was uh, this guy. Herbert J. Stern, who was the DA that investigated Malcolm's death. So anyway, you know, wow. what I really, after that was all over. Did course, you know that was all going to happen when you, so how did you make that thing? So it's no sellout, it's called. Was Malcolm X speeches cut up? Yeah, well, I was just starving it, uh, at did, that it, point. You know, there was no work at Sugar Hill. Yeah. Uh, Skip and Doug had started recording with this guy in uh, Philadelphia, and they didn't want me coming down there for some reason. And I eventually found out the guy was like a major drug dealer, and that's why they didn't want me. They actually saved my life not having me go down there. Oh, boy. But they weren't, you know, my musical family was gone, so I was kind of, you know, wayward back in Connecticut trying to figure it out. Yeah. And at that time, Rundy had seen... Run DMC had come out with some stuff, and it was all just drum machine and raps. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I, I could do something like that. Yeah. And I remember Grandmaster Flash uh, cutting some cassette tapes over a beat, and I always liked that idea, you know, of Dirty Harry talking or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remembered there was some Malcolm Rex records up at Sugar Hill, so I went up there and got one. Ooh found one and I was walking out with it and I ran into Marshall Chess and he asked me what I was doing with it and I said, oh, I'm going to do a 12 inch with Malcolm's speeches. I had no idea what I was going to do. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, I like that idea. How much you need? Yeah, right. <laughs> so right. I told him all oh, 50 bucks, make a demo. Wow. So he handed me 50 bucks. So I'm driving home. What did I just do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I called Harold Sargent and I said, uh, the drummer I told you about yep. in the last episode. And I said, Harold, I'm in trouble. And he said, look, go buy Allocate Haley's biography of Malcolm X. Yep. And then come over to my house. And he loaded me up with stacks of wow. Malcolm X speech records. But why did you pick Malcolm X? You just thought it would be powerful. 
Yeah. There's something powerful. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. And like, you know, I remember when I was a kid, my parents hated Malcolm X. Sure. And they liked Martin Luther King. And, sure. And uh, that was about all I knew about Malcolm X. Right. And uh, so, you know, I, I didn't realize the gravity of what I was going to do because at that time it was pretty untouchable subject. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Doing anything with his speeches back then. Wow. And, so, um, I mean, could you imagine that it would turn into a legal thing? Or you just said, I'm going to roll the dice, see what happens, or you didn't I think had about no it. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. I Was it worth it? Yes. Okay. Every minute of it. Hey, well, I that's mean, cool. I, I got to be good friends with Malcolm's wife, Betty Shabazz, wow. and uh, I learned a lot. Sure. But what I learned after the trial was over, and we, of course we won, um, but we had to give Joe a point and, um, just for him to go away. Yeah, point, yeah, yeah. point on the record. But with them, it was beyond money. They really loved Malcolm X. So they realized they were on the wrong side of history. And uh, wow. so Joe killed the record in the States. He was calling all the radio stations. These white boys are stealing our shit. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you could they, play it like that. So they only played it on a college radio in the States. Um, and I think... Uh, so anyway, you know... Wow. After that was all over... They called me back to do some more sessions at Sugar Hill. And that's when I realized Joey and Sylvia Robinson would, they would, you know, promise you the moon yep. and rip you off. Uh-huh. Now, they actually treated me with a lot of respect when I came back. And that's when I realized, oh, if you want to act like a punk and you don't want to go do your own thing. Yeah. Go across the river. The heck with them. Yeah. Then you deserve what you get. Yeah. But if you're willing to stand up and be a man, you know that's that's how Jaws. Now Joe you're saw now it. you're on their side of it. You're you're in the thing. Then they give you that respect. That's all they're going to give you. They're not going to yeah, give yeah. you anything else. But um, that's that's how they kind of looked at things, and uh, you know I respected that. So, wow. So that was uh, a uh, great learning experience. Wow. Actually. And then Tommy Boy. <coughs> yeah, well, I ended up putting out with Tommy Boy Records. and uh, Which was kind of the future. That was the next thing-ish. Yeah, I mean, you as know, far as we, I could we ended up in court. I said to Tommy, are we going to make any money from this? And he said, Keith, I doubt it. Right. You're going to have, this record's going to have to make enough money for us to steal from you and still pay you. Oh, wow. <laughs> and... I didn't know what to say to that. You yeah. know, I was like, but I was glad he told me the truth. He was being honest with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I asked Marshall Chess about it, and he said, Tommy's probably going to end up spending money, Keith, you know. Wow. So I think for that record, Betty got, um, what was it, 25000 and I got 25000 Yeah, right. Huh. So, you know, you know, back but, then that was a lot of money. But there, Sure, I would take it. But there was a buzz, though. So then probably everyone's like, what is this? Because it was the first thing kind of like that. Yeah, that kind of opened the door for me right. to uh, become a producer. And uh, So it was worth it, mm. even though you didn't make a killing on that record. Right. It was like, what? who's this? Who's doing this? Kind of gave me it? a career. And, yeah. you know, but when it came out, man, I, it was scary. I had journalists calling me from all over the world, hating me, you know. Oh, and, wow. uh, and you weren't even thinking about it like that, so you probably didn't have an answer. Well, Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's widow, 
widow, she basically told me, she said, Keith, I love this. And Malcolm would have loved it too. Sure. So I was cool with that. They could say anything they wanted. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, so, yeah, someone's going to call you up and try and corner you or get a thing. You know that you're not, like you say, you're not the, the, the white dude trying to rip us off. That wasn't what you were doing. Right. And she got a big kick you out of it. You know that. Yeah, she, as long as she knows that, then who cares? Everyone else knows. She once told me when, when uh, Spike Lee's movie came out, mm-hmm. I was living in England by then, and she called me up. She wanted me to go on this news show with her, but I couldn't make it. So we met for breakfast. And we're in the limo, and she goes, Keith, imagine now I'm married to a prince. <laughs> And that was her way of saying, you kind of opened the door for that because till I did that record, no Uh, one wanted to touch that subject. Wow. Yeah, he was the bad one. He was not the good one or whatever. It was the whole murder thing, you know? Who did it, you know? It it was like people were scared. Even that guy that did the documentary about who killed Malcolm X. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was telling the same thing I was getting, which was, you don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah, because you don't know. You don't know who's going to come. But I was too young to know what to be afraid of. Wow. You know, so I just kind of went forward. Wow. (laughs) That's heavy. So once again, you made made things happen. And that kind of opened a career for me up in in England, and that's why I moved to England. I had more work in England than I did in the States. Huh. So. And you knew, and it was, who did you know over there? was Was it Adrian Sherwood? He was the first one that came over and, wanted me to go over to England. But as soon as people found, I had people calling Tommy Boy, ABC called me to go over there and work with them. Yeah, yeah. Malcolm McLaren. Oh, yeah, right. I missed that one. Um, And uh, I don't think that stuff ever came out. I think it maybe ended up on a British Airways commercial for a minute. So they were like, so AB, okay. So I I called you because I told you I was going through your credits. Um, this is kind of really, you may find, I don't know if you're going to find this interesting, but I think this is funny. So when I graduated high school in 1985, and I liked around, you know, 82, 83, drum machines were, were coming in. So, right. and I like that sound. Right. So I bought the Frankie Goes to Hollywood record. Uh, Hall & Oates did a record that was kind of downtown sounding. Mm-hmm. And... I was into Thomas Dolby, who kind of had a break, break dance thing. I love Thomas Dolby. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was great stuff. And the ABC record because I don't remember where I heard it. "Be Near Me" was a big hit, but there, there was some. So anyway, that's what I thought. It was like English, but there was a a downtown. What I thought living here in Connecticut was a downtown New York drum machine element to it. Right. That was Y O U. Yeah, that was. Me. That is so funny. Because I, I, there was this one track, you, I don't even know if you remember it, who knows. Um, it was kind of like, uh, it was called A to Z. They kind of introduced themselves. Right, 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 the intro. The, yeah. the intro thing. And the drums were wicked. I used to play that thing over and over and go, man, this is so cool. Um, and well, then... When I, when I got a drum machine, it was so like... Funny. Yeah, you turned that thing inside out. Like, I listened to it now, and I was like, how did you even... Well, I did stuff... I looked at it this way. I could play drums. Yeah, yeah, sure. I guess so what I'm I figured, gonna, I go, this not, has got to be a drum. I'm not going to try and 
recreate drums because I can do that. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to do stuff a drummer could never do. Mm -hmm. And uh, DMX quantized up to 96 notes. Right. No drum machines even do that now. Yeah, right. So I was able to take, take the toms and time step them in. Oh, man. And make these drills, like these jackhammer drills. That's what I'm saying. In rhythm. And then I would open the box and tune them while we were recording. And uh, you know, people thought I was crazy, but they loved the sound. And uh, that, that was a pretty copied sound. Like right after that, I started a whole genre of uh, um, Deep House and, uh, and uh, a couple other genres where they, they were using that. They were doing it with everything. Hi-hats, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. But I did it with everything before they did and uh so funny yeah there's this thing on the end of that song you can hear the quantize it's just it's like one measure it goes from like right right yeah dude i used to play that i used to drop that on a needle <laughs> over and over and be like man oh man and imagine my surprise i'm sorry it just like it's so funny because like i was into that record and then i met you and kind of going through your discography and i'm like wait a minute that record and i went and <laughs> to my record rack and pulled out the record that I had in high school. Yep, there he is. That name meant nothing to me back then. Because how would I know? It was just a name on the thing. That's heavy. Well, when I showed up in England, the press so was funny. pretty uh, disappointed because they expected this big six-foot-tall black man to show up. And oh, wow. Here comes this... And they're like, that's the dude? Little white guy and yeah. with long hair and cowboy <laughs> boots on and really doesn't know how to dress and... <laughs> so uh, I think Betty summed it up best she said you know when um, the Malcolm X record came out my name was like big and then Malcolm X's name was small and I told Betty I didn't like it she said that's perfect huh. and I said what do you mean she goes Keith of all the great black artists that could have done something with my husband's speeches took a little white boy from Connecticut to pull it off so no one could say anything to me after that. Yeah, right, you know? right, right. And yeah, that's it. Really, I wasn't very clever, so I just, you know, I remember going to do Malcolm McLaren, and I uh, show up, and they've got a fair light there, and they've got this Barry White tune they've put together. Mm -hmm. And uh, Malcolm wants me to do dance tunes in 3-4. Oh, boy. And no one wanted to take the job. My ma my manager at the time was saying, nobody wants to take this job, Keith. He just fired Trevor Horn. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah. And, and besides, he's kind of a shyster. So... Oh, boy. So I, you know, I wasn't very clever. I just spoke my mind. So I said, I sat there with him and I said, well, gee, Malcolm, it sounds like I got to come up with it, the whole thing, don't I? Yeah. And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, I want more money. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, I don't know about that. And I said, well, while you think about it, tomorrow morning I'm going to be at the airport on my way back to New York. <laughs> you let me know. Hey. <laughs> and, you know, right when I was at the airport, they showed up with a car and he paid me what I wanted. And, oh, wow. Uh, and he had some wonderful stories. And that's how I met Trevor. Okay. Because uh, I was working at Trevor's studio, Sarm Studios with uh, Malcolm. And uh, Trevor was saying, Malcolm really likes what you're doing. What are you doing, Keith? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I told him, I said, well, I'm, I'm just fudging it, really. Did you know? bring your own machine, or by then, you're working on the Fairlight, or you're working on the... That was the thing. The guy had this 
beautiful two-headed Fairlight, you know, yeah. spent loads of money. And he, yeah. and he would he would program, but I would do all the yeah playing into the pro. You know. I see. And I'd get something going, and he'd go in and mess it all up, and he kept doing that. So Malcolm oh fired him, and then I got in uh, skipping Doug Wimbish, and we started cutting tracks for Malcolm. And uh, then, you know, it worked out pretty good after that. But that's how I met Trevor, and then Trevor started calling me for sessions. And uh, wow. he had <clears throat> endless things to do. And a real good producer, Steve Lipson, was working okay. with Trevor. yeah. And those guys, they did Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and I mean, the work they put into that. I, it's, I love that record. In <clears throat> they, The stories I heard. I can't even imagine. They did it all on Synclavier. Oh, okay. Hours and hours I mean, the, for, hours I of bought programming that to get a bar. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. That first track, <coughs> there's like one song, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. That's the whole side of the record. It's just like, it's one of my favorite things ever. It's and then I was asking him about the Grace Jones track yep. they had did, and right. Steve Lipson had programmed all that, and he said oh. uh, they got, I forgot the guy's name, but he played with uh, Trouble Funk. Oh, right, because there's like a go-go go, go thing. Yep, they that, flew yep. him in from D.C., yeah. and wow. he couldn't play, he couldn't, you know, he had a groove. Sure, sure. And they wanted a drum machine, you know, and uh, so they ended up sampling Bits of him. Right. And, and Steve put it all through a, a fair light. Yeah, yeah. And it took him weeks. Oh, man. To do that record. And just to get the drums down. Yeah, yeah. And then they made a whole album out of that one track. Yeah. It's, it's a, another record that I loved, Slave to the Rhythm. Yep. And, yeah, you know, they were just really on the cutting edge. So I, I was seeing that and saying, well, this, this is a... You know, because me and Skip and Doug and Adrian, we were doing that. We were cutting the edge, but we were doing it on the cheap side. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they were doing it on a Fairlight. They were doing it on um, a, a Synclavier. Okay, okay. Which is, you know, you talk about one. house money back then. Yeah, yeah, right. That's what it would have cost. So, Good Lord. But it was it was very cool getting to know Trevor because I thought he was a a great producer. You know, he. Yeah. Uh, his productions were so um, kind of like moody blues, just endless thickness of yeah. every time you listen to it, you hear something different. Yeah, There's something sure. in there. And uh, I got to watch him do it, you wow, know, that's crazy. and uh, so, you know, he, he called me for a lot of interesting sessions. And uh, then I stayed in England and I infiltrated the, the jazz scene over there, which was another big education because, uh, Along with playing with, you know, pop stars, that, that was kind of my income, you know, doing sessions for Seal. And yeah, we're my name got that. around, Annie yep. Lennox and Trevor, he hooked me up with the Tina Turner session. A lot of things yep. came through him. Yep. Wow. So that was kind of my bread and butter, but I was infiltrating the jazz scene. There's some amazing musicians in the UK. And uh, I met these two brothers the Mundazy brothers. Okay. Bass and drums. Yep. And Mark Mundazy is like this incredible drummer. I mean, he's the only guy that made Tony Williams come out of his dressing room to have a look. Hey. I mean, Are this they guy, still around? Yeah. Okay, I'll check and, it out. Um, so, you know, no one wanted to help them out. And uh, so the bass player... Michael, he drove up to me in the street in London and he handed me his card. He goes, you need this, you know. And uh, So uh, I met them both. 
and they both stuttered really badly. Oh, boy. And so me being American, I just said, look, man, what do I do? I mean, you stutter really badly. What do I do? Do I fill in the blank or do I wait? <laughs> you know, and, and so they both, they both started laughing like that. And they yeah, said, yeah, yeah. they said, no, no, never fill in the blank. Always wait. And, and, they, and then they started telling me how they loved me That's because funny. I came right out with it. Usually, you yeah, know, yeah, they yeah. said they have to suffer through the people going, oh, my cousin stutters, you know. And like, yeah, yeah. And you, you're just like, yo, what do I do? Yeah, right. <laughs> And neither of them stuttered when they played. Believe me, it was like off the chain. But wow, um, and then they they both took this course and they don't they don't stutter anymore. But back then, you oh, know, wow. it was it was pretty bad. But Mark, you probably have an app for that now. You just press a button on your phone and your stutter goes away or something. Yeah, but Mark was Mark and Michael both were rhythm geniuses. Like Mark could drop four time signatures at once. Yeah, yeah, wow. Independently, yeah. And I, I went out to dinner with Mark and Vinny Caliuto because I, I, Vinny wanted to meet me. And uh, he was buying all my sample CDs I was making. And um, so we sat down, and first thing Vinny does, we sit down at a table in a restaurant. Vinny pulls out a practice pad and a pair of sticks, throws practice <laughs> pad on the table. And, oh, oh no, no, here we go. He goes, Keith, give me a single. You know, so yeah. I did the best single I could muster up. Sure. In, in front of Vinny, right? Oh, and um, then, so, you know, Vinny looks at me, and, I, and then I looked at Mark. I said, hey, Mark, why don't you drop four time signatures for Vinny? Yeah, right. So Mark just pulled it out. Vinny put that practice pad away. Ooh. It was funny. Wow. And, you know, we That's hung out funny. most of the night. Uh, but uh, I learned from those guys quite a bit about rhythm. And then I met the guy that they learned it from, this guy oh, named... Mano Ventura, this incredible Peruvian guitar player, and I joined his band. And these guys are from where? They're in England. They're all in, in London. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Mano Ventura was from uh, Peru. Okay. And every guitar player, McLaughlin, you name oh, all wow. of them, they all stole from this guy. Okay. But he's like one of these underground geniuses because yeah, 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 yeah. his social skills are a little bit, you know, um, like mine, <laughs> you know, and, but his band, uh, we had this French bass player, brilliant bass player. And, um, basically the whole concept was he broke all the musical rules, but it worked and it sounded beautiful. And we might play a tune where I'd be playing in seven mm -hmm. and the bass player would be playing in nine Yeah, and he'd be playing all over the top of that. Wow. Uh, with the sax player, and um, I found out that the Mondesi brothers played with him for years, and everyone that was really good over there had all played with this guy. So I spent about four, good four years playing in his band just for the love of doing it. Wow. And really nothing ever got released or anything. We ended up doing some recordings that I've got tapes of that I don't play it for anybody because every time I do, they don't want to call me back. <laughs> like, because it's beyond stuff. Oh, but in England, I noticed that you had influences from all over the world being in the center of Europe. So you had a lot of um, Indian, yeah, and Tabla influences. Yeah, a lot of Cuban yeah. influences. Jamaican, Jamaican, of yeah. course. Yeah. And I, you know, with Adrian, I got to play with 
Lee Scratch Perry. Oh, and uh, I can't even imagine. Bim Sherman, Junior Delgado. And <laughs> it was always really funny when they saw me. Yeah, right. You know, the Jamaican thing, they'd be, till they heard me play, then it was okay. Yeah, yeah. And I always kept my mouth shut with those guys. I just, you know. Yeah, just do it. I, I just shut up and played. I think that's why Lee liked me. Wow. And uh, what was that like? I can't even. Lee Scratch Perry was like, best description of him was <laughs> Jamaican George Clinton. Yeah, right. That's how <laughs> I think of him. Yeah. yeah. And he was, he was crazy. Uh, you know, he would do just about anything. Like, uh, we did this, uh, they have this thing, a carnival. Okay. In, in a part of uh, um, London. And we were supposed to do a float with Lee Scratch Perry. Adrian was going to dub it. Yeah. So I, I just went along, check it out. And this man started singing like at 12. Yeah. Or no, it was more like 10 in the morning mm. when it started. Yeah, yeah. All day. Yeah, yeah, right. Never stopped. Crazy. And it lasted till... That evening. Oof. And, uh, but I got along with Lee good because the first time I met him, Adrian had picked him up at the airport and he was really drunk and he was in the backseat of Adrian's brand new car throwing up. Oh, and, uh, you know, Adrian said, I don't, you know, he said, I'm sorry, Keith, but he's brilliant, brilliant artist. And I sure. Said, I said, the man looks like he belongs in a convalescent home. Sure, you know, I had sure. no idea. So, so we you got weren't to- a reggae, you didn't know. <laughs> no. Wow. So That's I. funny. I, uh, so we're going to the gig. He's sobered up now. And I said, Hey, I said, Hey Lee, you know, I don't know anything about reggae. Is this going to be any good? (laughs) (laughs) And and, You know, meanwhile, there's people lined up to, well, let me kiss your butt. Yeah. Right. And, uh, maybe that's the thing. And he stopped acting crazy. And he he looked at me and says, well, actually, uh, I got to go back to Jamaica to get what I really need but this is going to be pretty good Keith and then he went back to acting crazy around everyone else wow which was uh that's interesting that kind of let me know a little bit about Lee yeah 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 and he used that craziness to get that's what I was thinking just to get get his publishing you know because oh gee we don't want any trouble you know type thing wow and so you know why not and then I'm I ended up playing with Bernie Worrell's band for a while when I moved back to the States because I had met him while I was in England. So England was a big education for me. I just soaked yeah. it up, and everybody had something new. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I left the States, dude, you know, people were playing in odd time signatures, but they weren't going as deep. Mm-hmm. And it uh, seemed like in England, nobody played in 4-4, you know, unless oh, it was wow. a pop gig. <laughs> you know? I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's but, interesting. Did you do much jazz playing before? But they're just you weren't there weren't the there weren't the heavy cats here like that heavy. But you wanted to you wanted to play with the with, it was when you got over there that you're like oh okay. Well, I played with the records. I mean, right. I always wanted to play fusion music. That's what I wanted to play. Okay. I didn't you know yeah funk was, uh, kind of a close cousin. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, playing with Skip and Doug, they really honed me in on the pocket type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, and really, I've always been the kind of guy where, you know, if the music, you know, like I told you in the last session, you know, I'm listening to the total sound. So yep. whatever the music requires, that's what I'm trying to do. So playing with these fusion bands, 
in England, I was playing all kinds of stuff. Yeah, right. That I had learned years ago, you know, and I never got a chance to use. But I was going, oh, gee, you know, the people used to come to gigs. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Look, I've been waiting my whole life. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. But it it just came out of me because the music required it. And uh, yep. I know what you mean. In a musical way. So it was it was great being over there, but uh I you know, I, I missed the States. Um, I didn't want to get old in England, you know. No. Yeah, because no matter how good friends you are with somebody, no matter how many people you know, yeah, there's a line. You'll always be a yank. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's it's subtle, but it's so you're only gonna get so far. Maybe. Well, you know, you. I wonder if it's the same, the opposite. Probably. You know? Probably. It's probably the same both ways. When you're from another country, there is a little bit of separation there. You yeah, know? yeah. You're, you're, you're not really English. You know, even though I had uh, an, English, you know, an English stamp in my passport sure, sure, and all sure, that. Sure. English license. But, um, you know... Even if I got knighted by the queen, yeah, right, something right. crazy <laughs> like that, still wouldn't work, you know? Yeah, right. Well, wow. So I wanted, I wanted to come back to the States. So I'm really glad I did, you know? Hey, well, that's cool. Wait, I want to back up. I just thought it, I was thinking of this before. So you come over to England with more of a reputation of programming, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, I, you got to wonder, there's some people, they think your program is, they even know that you play drums. Well, most of them didn't care, you, you know. Right. I was just thinking that's funny. Like yeah. they don't even know, like how can this dude do that? And you're like, I'm just taking drums to here. Right. And then, but Trevor must have figured it out because the stuff you played on with him, you're playing trap. So, yeah, Trevor, he loved my programming, and uh, he uh, and he liked my playing too. Yeah. Um, him and him and Steve Lipson, they both had real good ears. So. So they recognized, they just said, okay. Well, he wanted me to play drums on a track because he knew I played drums because yeah. by that time, Tackhead was doing gigs. Oh, so okay, all right. I was on stage playing against a percussion loop yeah, yeah, yeah. out of a drum machine. Yeah. So basically playing with a click live. Yeah, yeah. And uh, That's funny. So they were like, yo, get you on some drum track, get some drum stuff. Um. Talk about working with Seal, just out of curiosity. I'm just curious. I, again, did not. <coughs> it's. Let me just say, I think this is funny. This is the shit that I live for. Is So I'm doing my Keith LeBlanc research, and I'm like, okay, how do we get from uh, Sugar Hill to Pretty Hate Machine? And then, <laughs> But when you follow it, though, and I hear the same year, Tackhead, I did this for my wife. I go, do you hear it? There's no difference. Like, I'm just like, this is what he's doing. And then this is pretty hate machine. And you just go, yeah, that's that guy. Didn't know that you played on seal. And then I listened to it and I go, yeah, that's him. Cause I can hear it. I, I can hear it. Right. But I didn't know that those are all the same people. That's why I would suggest people. If you're interested, you got to listen to my mixes because it's funny. You just go, Oh yeah, no, that is him. Yeah. Yeah. I hear it now because it's the same, but I never would connect those dots because how would I? Well, I think I took up the drums because I loved them, number one, but I always liked the idea of 
being back of the stage. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, I always used to get, when I started, really bad stage fright. Oh. It was, it was a thing, you know. And yeah, yeah. Uh, then after a while, you know, it, yeah. you know, when you go to the stage, you feel a little something. Yeah. And if you don't feel that, maybe it's time to take up woodworking. Sure, or something, sure, you sure. Know? No, I hear you. Yeah, you got um, it. But, you know, when I first started out, you know, playing for my relatives and stuff, that, that was nothing but playing, yeah. playing for my high school class terrified oh, me, boy. you know, that type of thing. Bristol so. High or whatever. <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah, man. <laughs> it was terrifying. But uh, I forgot the question. No, no, Seal. I just was curious oh, yeah. how, how that Seal. Well, Trevor came to me. He goes, I got this great new artist. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he had me come in and uh, program uh, drums for, um, oh, what was the song? Big hit. Crazy. Yeah. You know, first draft of it. Trevor would always do. Yeah. And um, so I went in and he had just fired his programmer. Oh, wow. And the guy took all the samples out of the place. Oh, boy. So I went and they had nothing. So I, yeah. I opened my case and I said, just load it up with everything. Yeah. So, and then, you know, I, Trevor said he wanted like a white lines type deal. Yeah. So, you know, I knocked that up and he came and he goes, Keith, make sure none of those samples leave with you. And I said, Trevor, when I came here, you didn't have any. Yeah, right. So I just gave you all mine. You can have them. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, and... Yeah. So I think he liked that. So then when they did the album, he had me come in and play live drums on everything. So, oh, cool. So that's, and you know, Seal was just kind of hanging around, really quiet. Yeah. I never got to see him voice anything. Wow. And I guess he was living on a park bench when wow. Trevor found him. Wow. Crazy. Uh, so, uh, and uh, this great keyboard player named Guy Zigworth. Uh, okay. Um, did a lot of the arranging that stuff okay. for, for Trevor. And, uh, wow. So, you know, I, who could have known Seal was going to be a huge star, but that's what I mean. What a great producer the guy was. He yeah. could see a diamond in the rough and just, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> he wasn't wrong. Yeah. It takes years to, to be able to do that. And, uh, that's yeah, crazy. He told me, he said, Keith, if you want to be a great producer, you gotta find something new that no one's done. Yeah. And trust your instincts and go for it. And if it works, you're, you're there. a genius. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He said, but you have to be prepared for it not to work, you know? Well, you already, you kind of were doing that with no sellout. <coughs> like you were already kind of, you did that. Well, I think that's why he put up with me, you know, because <laughs> I actually, you wow. know. Um, but uh, oh, that's wild. And then, you know, when I moved back to the States, it took a while to get back into everything and uh now i just kind of uh i'm at the point now where i just do what's fun yeah yeah occasional job yeah but uh mostly i try and do things that are really fun for me to do i really enjoy just playing out with local guys you know that's cool i, I love playing live because once you hit the note it's gone yeah, right, right. It never comes back to haunt you. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to go to court. No one's going to. Yeah, right. A, yeah, yeah. That's funny. It doesn't come back to haunt you. That's funny. Yeah, but yeah. You, you hear that note? Yeah, 
it got to a point where I was playing on so many different records, and I'm still finding stuff I played on that yeah, I, yeah. I didn't remember. It was really, it turned into, I'm just trying to pay the rent. Okay. It became a job. I actually got to the point where it was almost like being on a job site. Yeah. You, you know? Um, Regardless of who it was. So when it's I Annie mean, Lennox, you're just like, whatever. Well, Annie was special. Annie, she was one of the few singers that could nail it. You know, just go in the studio, nail it live. Yeah. She's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I liked her a lot. Um, but a lot of singers, you know, by then they were piecing things together. Mm -hmm. You know, they couldn't stay in tune. They yeah, record yeah. them three times, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so a lot of things were manufactured at the time. Um, I know Depeche Mode was kind of put together. I remember uh, I did some tracks for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, those guys, uh, they had a whole, everyone had a different way of working. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, and then I did this album. Yeah, I did this album called Major Malfunction. Yep. And I listened to it. You listened to it. I did. Yeah. What would you make of it? It was cool. I mean, I can't ima <laughs> at the time, I can imagine. I'm like, this is pretty far out. Well, that was you know. like <clears throat> mostly tape manipulation. Okay. And to it again. I would do stuff like Adrian would he'd do a mix of my beats and then he'd record it on six stereo pairs. Okay. Put record that on a multi-track. And then EQ that. So he's just like making stems before the right, stems. And, yeah, right. And then then dubbing it. He'd be dubbing it, and I'd be on a half-inch machine. Wow. And like I'd do stuff like I'd record it once, and then I'd turn the tape over and have him record, you know, send it to me again. While he was sending it to me, I'd be taking it in and out of record and so yeah, right. <laughs> So... So God only knows. And then, you know, I, yeah, yeah. I learned how to edit. Chris Lord Algie taught me how to edit because he, he didn't want to do an edit session for me. He goes, you're a drummer, kid. You can figure this out. Let me show you. you know? and wow. So Jeez. I was off. So I, it was just tape editing, yeah, a yeah. lot of it. Wow. And uh, I remember Future Sound of London um, came to the studio I was working at and they expected to see all these computers and everything. You know, yeah, right. And there you are with the razor blades. <laughs> and, and they, you know, all I had was like an... S1000, you know, Mac and, you know, drums and a uh, couple little bits of gear, keyboards. And they were disappointed. And they said, well, Major Malfunction was like our Bible. How did yeah. you do all that? And I said, it was all tape manipulation. Yeah, and they, they were really disappointed. Well, where there's a will, there's a way. Like you say, you, if you have the vision, you'll make it on whatever <clears throat> to, a, to a degree. Yeah, that's what I found out. Whatever gear you possess, yep. it's not the gear that's important. What's important is the idea. Right. And like, like my gear, I'll, I'll wait till the last possible minute to update anything. Because when you do that, you're stuck in purgatory for a good month, you know. Oh, getting the bugs out. Yeah. So you can't exactly. work. Right. You can't work like this. So I like to keep the workflow going. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. This stuff is like, well... And then take a month off and let it update or something. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. I want to be in the middle of a project and update. And then, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm always in the middle of a project, so... Um, wow. So, I, you know, I think the last time I updated was maybe six years ago. Yeah, man. And... Uh, it's not broke. As long as it's working. Right. So whatever you have... Yep. 
if you got a great idea, just go with that. That's what's important. It's not the gear. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I met guys that they've got incredible gear. Yeah. And they're showing me all these plugins and all this stuff. Yeah. And I said, can you play me anything you've done? Well, I'm still configuring. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. you can get stuck in that. Right. I've and then been you don't there, create. You know? Yeah, you're not creating anything. You're yeah, like yeah. playing with plugins all day. It's like, what have I done today? Yeah. No results. Yeah. So. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think, kind of. I don't. I think that comes from coming up in an era where every minute was a lot of money. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, we're yeah we're in a different. It's a different a thing different, now. A different head, yeah, yeah. We were talking about, um, like, being, like, we're old enough that I still, the mentality of, like, the red light goes on. Like, I'm going for a take from top to bottom. Right. Every time. And there's something about that focus that keeps you in. And then I remember when it became, I mean, I'm not complaining. I always still go for a take. But then when, just knowing that you can cut it up later. You just don't, you don't bear down as hard because you're like, well, I'll get close. And then maybe they'll nudge or maybe they'll <laughs> move or maybe they'll cut between takes. But like, yeah, back in the day, it was like, yeah, that's what, you know, you'd be like, well, I only paid for t three hours. Right. You know, with my band or whatever. Like, I, we got to get this right. Right. It's crazy. So, you, you, you know, it's good you've got that work ethic because. Well, I was just old enough. You know, I just, I was still, I was still recording the tape when I started. So it was like there was no take. It's you couldn't those, even punch drums. It's all those drums. little imperfections. Yeah, that make the magic really. Right, right. No. And um, so when I record something for myself, which is one of the hardest disciplines I think for me, mm -hmm. um, I always go for a take, just for my own benefit. Yeah, yeah. The perfect take that I don't have to do anything to. You're saving yourself time because you can, you have the ability to do it if you focus. Well, I don't get it every time. You know, what I usually do now is I'll, I'll line it up three times. I'll do three takes, sure. and then I won't listen to it for a couple of days. Yeah, you were talking about that, yeah. And so yeah. Um, that's what I've come up with. But those imperfections become magic. And I think that's why a lot of the records in the 70s were so magical mm. and so groundbreaking because all those little imperfections turned into something like wow. that song cold duck time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I played with Eddie Harris when wow. I was in England. Yeah. And, um, Boogaloo. I was asking him about that. Right. He was a genius by the way. I mean, oh. he was suffering from bone marrow cancer. Whoa. And that was a crazy gig. I mean, I didn't make the rehearsal because I had a session. So I came in the next day for sound check and, uh, they introduced me to Eddie, and he goes, yeah, you're the mf -er that didn't show up for the rehearsal. Oh, no. So I just, my drums were set up, and I just got in back of the drums, and I was just opening the stick bag, and I hear, blues and D, one, two, two, four, just like that, right? <laughs> and I, I managed to get a stick out and get it to the rise cymbal. Oh. And, you know, so and then I sat down, but keeping up with that guy, oh. I mean, I couldn't have kept up with him in his prime. He was yeah, right. Imagine off that. the chain. But he was telling me that huh. cold duck time was a mistake. Yeah, right. Right. The first part of that, no huh. one had the head yet. And uh, it was a live recording, that real famous recording. Yeah, 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 yeah. And huh. he said it turned into like that's what people love about it. Yeah, right. I got because you hear him kind of come in with it. Right. It, it sounds right. so yeah, that's yeah. You come in right. You're right, away. that's magic. Yeah. 
And yeah. he was telling me wow. crazy stories. He said when he met Jack Dijonette, he was playing keyboards. Hmm. And yeah, uh, right. he, he said, you suck on keyboards, Jack. You, you're better on drums. So Oh, wow. Jeez. And, uh, you know, he, he gave a lot of people their start. He, he was, he's uh, incredible. Huh. He'd start out the night, he'd just play a drum solo mm. on the saxophone with the pads. Oh, yeah, right. The, yeah. Incredible. I, that, that's a you know? And But I got to play, uh, what's that famous tune he wrote that everybody, that fusion tune everybody likes to play? Uh, I can't think either. Oh, man, I can't think of it, but I got to play that with him, and that was like, that was a great moment for me in time. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to look it up. uh, Freedom Jazz Dance. Right. Yep. And uh, the people that were on that gig, um, the club owner was ripping everybody off. Oh, man. So we had to take the club owner to the union to to get paid some of the money they owed us. We had played a couple weeks with Eddie. And And this was where? um, This is in London. Okay. And the keyboard player, this girl, Wonderful keyboardist named Nikki O. She's gotten jazz awards. And, yeah, yeah. In the UK and uh, everything. She she went up to uh, Eddie and she goes, "I'm going to remember this the rest of my life." And Eddie goes, "You sure are," because he already knew he already had his money and he knew this. What, what she's this got guy to go through to, to get. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So yeah, I met you know a lot of incredible characters and uh, but everybody that was. A really great musician was always really fun to be around. Yeah. Really down to earth. Yeah, that's um, cool. I remember uh, meeting John McLaughlin because Dennis was playing with him. And we were we were doing the concert the next day, and Dennis had you know, I had shaved my head. You know, sure. Dennis was wearing a hat. His hair was going, and I used to tease him about it. So I'm in the I'm in the audience, and uh, in the middle of the show. Dennis takes his hat off. He's looking right at me. He takes yeah, yeah. his hat off, and people are turning around looking at me. And, and you know, he's got his head shaved. Yeah, right. right. So we went in the dressing room, and you know, That's Doug funny. and Skip they knew Dennis from way back too. So they tell him he looked like the guy from Spanky and our gang. Yeah, and, yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah, yeah. Curly Three Stooges and McLaughlin. <laughs> looked, McLaughlin was loving it because. He was used to people coming, oh, Dennis, oh, Dennis. Oh, know? so now we're just being, we're, yeah, we're just goofing around. Just regular yeah, yeah, people, yeah, 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 you know, and yeah, McLaughlin, he was yeah. so cool. Yeah. You know, one of the greatest guitar players in the he world. He just, just wants someone to treat him normal. Yeah. That's all he's looking for. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think Roots were on the same gig, and I didn't get to meet Questlove. I really wanted to meet him. I eventually met him later on, but yeah. uh, they're DJ. He, he must know who you are. Questlove, but he knows. I did get to meet him once in New York, and that was a funny instance. Doug was there with me, and uh, I said, hi, man, I, I love your work, because I had really, I checked out the roots, and I really sure. loved yeah. what they were doing, and, you know, I said, I really love your work, and he goes, oh, what's your name? I said, Keith. He goes, Keith, who? I said, Keith LeBlanc, and he goes, you're the Keith LeBlanc, <laughs> and I'm there. Well, I don't know. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then he said the one that played on the Sugar Hill Records. So he turned out to be, you know, he was quite a big fan of that. Now, um, here's, here's a question. You got to wonder this. When, <laughs> this is a terrible question, but you think about it. I, at that time, I wonder 
he if it was pre-internet, I wonder if Questlove was like, this is a white dude? Like, or he probably, I wonder if he knew. Because like, you're I like, never, yeah, I'm you know, the I, Keith LeBlanc. It's like, yeah. I'm, uh, you yeah, know. that's what he said. He goes, the Keith LeBlanc. Doug was laughing. Yeah, like, Doug was yeah. just standing behind me laughing. And, uh, but you know, I didn't think of that. Because. Yeah, right. Why would you? Um, you know, an interviewer once asked me, he goes, uh, you know, he's asking me about the Jamaican thing, you know, sure. being involved in that. And uh, he said, you must have got a lot of uh, problems from people about your color, you know. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah. And um, I told him, I said, look, when it comes to music, it transcends everything. Sure. And the only thing people are interested in is whether you can deliver what is needed. They don't care what color you are. You yeah, can right. be from the moon. If you can right. play... What they want to hear, yeah. that's all that matters. And yeah. Right. Why would they say, oh, yeah, he sounds great, but he's not the right color? Why? Well, you know, I would, I would you know, there's yeah, yeah. idiots everywhere. Well, yeah, You sure. know, every once sure. in a while sure. you, you meet one and sure. you just have to forgive them and yeah, yeah, yeah. just go on. But uh, it's, wow. it's a shame uh, in this country and in a lot of other countries we're still struggling with nonsense yeah uh, yeah because that's pointless you know the, the whole i remember uh oh it was a few years about four years back when i first moved back they were they kept going on about oh uh, a white cop shot a black youth you know yeah yeah and i'm thinking why can't they just say policeman Shot a youth. Yeah, that should be enough. That's yeah. well, that's enough problem to work on right there. Yeah. And then I heard well, yeah. Morgan Friedman say, you know, they asked him the same question. He said, well, the first thing we have to do is stop labeling each other. Sure. And, uh, you know, sure, there are cultural differences between the different races on this planet, but we're all human beings. We're all exactly the same. Sure. And uh, those cultural differences should be enjoyed and embraced rather than you know used to separate people and i right. think i think it's all uh, me personally you know i don't base it on anything except what i've seen in my life i think it's a way to keep people separated so they never look at the bigger picture why not yeah and it's easy uh, enough yeah you, just low level nonsense right and yeah. and it really you know when i hear it you know, it's it's funny. You know, you go through you go through your thing, and you're not bothered with any of that. And then someone comes along, and they make you think about it because of yeah, their right. actions. And right. then you have to deal with whatever their thought of it is. Like, right. And um, meanwhile, you're not thinking of it like that because you it's music. Tra like you said, it transcends all of those boundaries. Yeah. You're not. No one that's really in that in the music thing is thinking like that. Right, exactly. And uh, huh. so I think that's a beautiful thing about music because that's what you, I was thinking. You, you, you get, you know, I see these wonderful young musicians, all races and creeds, just playing their butts off. Yeah. And that's, that's really where it's at. It's all about the music, you know, let everything else go, you know. And uh, so, you know, I... I think they've been pushing that narrative worldwide for yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it's, I think it's, it's up to the younger generation. I think 
they don't look at it the same way anymore. I, I think, think that's true. I think that's true. And that's really... At least um, it's the beginning. You know, yeah. We just don't... They don't care. Like, we were taught to. Like, we we were told that it matters, that that matters. Yeah. And they don't. Yeah, maybe they won't. But, you know, I, I'm really happy to see the youth getting past that and going past that because it's, it's really not important just concentrating on the music the only thing i'm worried about is the uh the ai stuff you know I, yeah, yeah yeah all these people were saying oh i don't like this ai playing bass lines and this and that i said well i told i, I mentioned i think i got interviewed about it and i said well look I'm waiting until the AI gets to a point where I can give it instructions to do what a human being could never do. That might be interesting. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Trying, yeah. you know, whatever Go the beyond. technology is, wow. just take it and, and use it as an art form rather than... Um, Trying to replace what is... What humans already do. Well, that's, that's your mind. That's what you... That's, yeah, that's where you are. You're always you're thinking ahead. That's what you did in the first place. Yeah, I, uh, you know what I mean. Like that's why you are who you are. An interviewer once asked me, he "Goes, you must miss the old way of recording. You know, the tape and the rollback and everything." I said, "I don't miss it at all." Yeah. And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, I can get up in the morning, roll out of bed in my underwear, and try anything I can imagine. I don't have to go anywhere to do it." Right. You have to worry about the clock. <laughs> And I said, that's a beautiful thing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you kind of looked at me a little strange, expected a different answer, but I never really, you know, I, I think that's why I loved Miles Davis. He always just kept progressing. Yeah. No, I'm not going to do that. I did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You know what? We got to go. I don't want to go. This is freaking awesome. We got to do this. <laughs> Even again, this is funny. No, this is this is this is something else. Maybe do it in a get few, your own show. few years when I got a beard. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No, you should get your own show. Man. Oh man, I couldn't do that. I couldn't. No, 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 no. <laughs> I couldn't. I didn't do. Yeah, yeah, you could. Whatever. Um, whatever. That's you. You really have to think on many levels to to do an interview. Uh, well, I don't know. And that's uh, what they say. I don't know. This. No biggie. I'm interested. I'm genuinely interested. That's all you got to do. Well, like you said, we're both musical geeks. Yeah. You oh, know, yeah. We're just lucky that being a geek got to be trendy eventually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. It is funny when you think about it. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? I got to press the button. Yeah, man. We'll press it. Hey, once again, Keith LeBlanc part two was here. I don't know. Does he get another mug? Do you need it? No, no. no. One's one's sufficient, <laughs> but I really love it. I love my mug. I already used it. It works oh, great. Yeah. Hey, man. Keith LeBlanc was here again. Uh, we'll do this again. John Peckman. Grow beard. The ultimate. Hey. <laughs> you heard it here first, kids. Thank you. I'm going to press the button. I really appreciate you being here. So, everybody, you got to listen to my mixes when I post them. We gotta, you got to get the whole story. It's going to blow your mind. It blew my mind, and I thought I knew everything. John Packman Podcast, Connecticut Valley School of Music and Dance, beautiful downtown Portland. Come over the bridge, go through one set of lights, pull a U. We park in the street in front of the red neon sign in the window. Have your own podcast. Dave will tell you how. Uh, tell your friends, neighbors, hit the bell, hit the alert. 
like, subscribe, uh, pull up your pants, uh, tuck in. I don't know what what else. What else can we do? Um, I guess that that is all, right? That's all. All okay, right. Okay. Bye. Thank you, Keith. Thank you. <laughs> that is all. <laughs>